Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Okay, so now it does me great pleasure to formally introduce today's guest co-host. For those of you who have been with us for some time, you know that we like to do this, which is read the bio of our guest co-host. It's our way of helping our community to understand the accolades, the credentials, the wealth of experience in which our guest co-hosts show up to the conversation with, and so today will be no different. I am so pleased and honored to welcome Marie DeVoe, an authoritative figure in diversity, equity, and inclusion. She brings a wealth of personal and professional experience to the table. Her trajectory, marked by resilience and adaptability, began with the diagnosis of scoliosis, which steered her determination from the world of ballet to academia business. As an ambitious young woman, she swiftly ascended corporate ranks. However, encountering a manager who attempted to stifle her voice led Marie to pivot and start her boutique learning and development firm, High Tides Consulting, in 2016. High Ties adopts a unique approach to DEI, emphasizing effective communication and inclusive leadership to foster cultures of belonging. Her entrepreneurial venture is more than a consulting service. It's a platform to empower individuals and organizations to thrive authentically. Marie is renowned for her expertise in rapid content development expert facilitation, and building authentic relationships. She champions the voices of women and BIPOC individuals in corporate spaces, drawing on her experiences to help clients curate communities that generate energy, growth, and financial sustainability. Her leadership philosophy mirrors her life lessons of authenticity and adherence to one's values. Resonant with community is aligned. Operating at the highest frequency, she infuses this energy into every organization she partners with. Marie looks forward to collaborating with ERG leaders, BIPOC HR executives, and new entrepreneurs in their journey toward inclusivity and diversity. She stands ready to support organizations in cultivating an inclusive, equitable workspace where every individual feels a sense of belonging. And so broadcast community. You know what we do now, especially if you've been with us for quite some time, as I stop sharing my screen, I will invite you to find those accolades, find whatever kind of credentials and words of affirmations, and place them into the chat so that we can properly welcome our guest co-host today, Marie DeVoe. I'm going to add her to the spotlight. And welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for um, gracing us with your presence, your time, your talent. And I know all of the wisdom that you're going to share with us. And Marie, one of the things that we often do before we release our guest co-host to uh, greet the audience in their own way is to just ask that you share with us something that we would not know about you from reading your bio, as I just did, or even from um, looking at your LinkedIn profile. So welcome. Thank Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be part of this conversation today. Um, and already, thank you so much, the warm welcome from all of your audience. I've already connected with some of you on LinkedIn, so it already feels like home. So thank you for that. Um, I think I'll just share, I am an amateur jam skater. Um, I can be known to turn my garage into my very personal roller rink. Um, and that has been my ambition since lockdown. So a little tidbit about me. Um, don't put it to the test. I know they're in this community, especially there could be quite a few people who do some roller skating. Um, that has been uh, my current hobby of choice of late. I so love that. I don't know if I've ever heard it called like a jam skater, but uh, yes, I mean, I love that. So you will turn your garage. It, it reminds me of fondly, it reminds me of my childhood when my sister and I would put our skates on and we would skate on the car porch of our home. And so that is that is so great. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, and so you encountered a manager um, who attempted to stifle your voice and that is what led you to start your um, consulting firm. And so tell us a little bit more about that and how specifically it impacted you and, and what did you do to really overcome that so that now you can be successful? Yeah, so uh, my professional career really started in um, academia. I worked um, in a number of different um, after-school programs that really focused on tutoring skills and supplemental education for young people, so largely in the K-12 through space. And doing that work, the thing that I was really 
drawn to was the learning and development spaces. So really creating the trainings for new leaders and new managers. And so in my last full-time corporate role, it was probably the most challenging role that I'd had, um, which I find is probably true for many experiences. I think when we look back, oftentimes the things that were most rewarding were the things that were the most difficult, Um, but that was this role for me. And the thing that was really rewarding about it was that I got to create a department from scratch. And so I built the learning and development arm of this organization from the beginning. It was a high growth organization. And so I was with them for four years. I'm I'm sorry, I'm laughing at our chat in Zoom, but but I spent about four years uh, developing a learning and development department and building a team and creating new trainings, helping us get into a learning management system, all of these things. And there came a time when, as we all do, we kind of outgrow the role that's been given to us. And so I was kind of looking for where can I grow next? What else can I contribute in this space? And a lot of the work that I had done to that point had been for the operations arm of of the organization. And so I looked to um, kind of the next most popular department, which was academics, right? And I went to the chief academic officer and I said, hey, I've noticed that you have not built out the learning and development arm of your department. I would love to support you in that. It also would help us because we do need these two departments to be aligned. And almost immediately in speaking to her, I realized two things. Um, One, um, she did not have any expertise in my area. And so right away, I'm having to educate her on vocabulary, explaining things like andragogy and, you know, terms that I use often when we talk about learning, when we talk about how we create behavior change through training. And the second thing that I realized was um, they were not organized in a capacity that would make it easy for me to seamlessly transition. Now, unfortunately for me, um, the CEO and really the the executive director had already decided that this was going to be a good move. And so even though I had met with (laughs) the chief academic officer and realized this isn't going to be a good fit, I ended up still transitioning over to that team. And what ensued was a lot of appropriation of my ideas. What ensued Mm -hmm. was her feeling very threatened by my track record of success and her then choosing to find ways to minimize me. And that Mm -hmm. included removing members of my team that included stripping me of responsibilities that included sitting in meetings and verbally telling others in the meeting that I had no decision-making authority, things of this nature to very publicly demean me and, and really diminuize the work that I had done today. And, um, going through that experience, I, I share this story with people because oftentimes it is those traumas, those experiences of hurt that allow us to see what is possible in terms of other ways of working. And so it really was a light bulb for me to say like, oh my goodness, if I'm experiencing this. And at that point I had been, I was a director level. I had the highest performance review of anyone else of my title um, and still was being pushed out and was still being bullied and actively very publicly harassed in the workplace. And I said, this could happen to me, right? This could certainly be happening to a lot of other folks. Um, And so from there, I really took a lot of those lessons and really was able to share that with other people when I started teaching more anti-harassment in the workplace, what is inclusive leadership in the workplace, helping people understand that workplace trauma is actually very prevalent and does require healing and introspection in order to push through and get to the other side. Um, But that was really kind of the experience that led me to think, hmm, um, there, there is something really broken in corporate America, and I don't think enough people are talking about it. Yeah, um, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. Uh, unfortunately, we do hear stories like this way too often. Um, and and so I, I appreciate your fortitude of wanting to take that negative experience and then try to help others, right? I think that's that's how in which a lot of us kind of find our purpose and our, our calling, if you will. Um, I do want to make this audience aware that I am actually joining this conversation from my a different habitat. I'm actually in Santa Barbara this week, um, shooting new LinkedIn learning courses. And so um, we discovered at the beginning that there could be some um, issues with the internet. But if so, we have a plan for that. But I did want to just give heads up. Um, so 
when you when you share this story, I'm sure, Marie, that there's often others who can identify. And then maybe immediately what they think about is how did you navigate that? What gave you the strength? What gave you the courage? What were the strategies and the steps that allowed you to be able to, um, you know, continue to to realize success once you were able to take that next step? And so what type of advice do you give others that may be finding themselves in a very similar situation? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I have found to be really supportive for me in my career journey is understanding that everything happens for a reason. And oftentimes when we find ourselves in toxic situations, instead of asking us, asking ourselves, you know, how could I stay asking, asking ourselves, what do I gain from staying here? Mm. How is this serving me? Um, And so much of what I found is those situations often are the divine interruption we need to move and shift and do something different. Yeah. And so instead of seeing it as a punishment, actually looking at it as an opportunity of, oh, thank goodness this is showing up. So I know for certain this is not for me. Um, And so um, a a quote that I I often offer to to clients is, um, I am enjoying the sound of my feet walking away from things that no longer serve me. (laughs) <laughs> and there is something beautiful about exiting spaces that are harmful to us in service. Yeah. Of- yeah. One of the things that I often hear is that when women, particularly women of color, experience these types of toxic, you know, traumatizing um, behaviors in the workplace is that there's some sense of denial that this is really not happening. Maybe I'm imagining this. Maybe this is me. Maybe I'm being overly sensitive. And I think that that's part of the problem as well, because when we harbor those thoughts and feelings, we we may continue to sit with it and, and tolerate it and perceive that we are powerless. And I just want to get your thoughts, Marie, about how do you help women um, to recognize when the behaviors, they're not making them up, you know, they're not being overly sensitive. It really is um, outside of what they deserve and what they should be, um, what they should expect. And so share with us your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, and I'm I'm loving the chat already. Um, I see Nicole's like like raise your hand in terms of like, yes, gaslighting, right? We start gaslighting ourselves. We start doubting our own experience, Um, which of course is when you think about the nature of harassment and bullying, what's often happening is someone is choosing to invalidate you and your experience in order to elevate themselves. And so if you can recognize that that's what's happening, your job is then to actually continue to validate yourself. Um, And so when others refuse to acknowledge you and your greatness, your power, your gifts, it is always your responsibility to acknowledge yourself. And so I tend to remind my clients, especially individuals, uh, women, especially BIPOC women who are transitioning, um, that you actually don't need anyone's approval, right, to do what you're doing. You actually don't need any external validation. Um, even if we look at just demographics across the board, especially women of color and especially Black women are the most educated, highly credentialed employees in the workforce, right. and we're still right the most underpaid when we look at comparison to our white male counterparts. And so again, the external validation, external validation may not ever come. And so we okay. need to do a lot of that work, that affirmation ourselves. And so that's the, the first thing I remind people is your experiences are real, right? The value you bring is real, and you get to remind yourself of that when others try to make you smaller. Yeah, that internal validation is incredibly important. And so what I'm hearing is that there's a both and. There's certainly a responsibility at the individual level where we have to take care of self. And part of taking care of self is recognizing when we are in situations where we may need to amp up that those internal validations really surround ourselves with tribes of people that believe in in us and our potential and that can speak that level of um, encouragement into us. Um, but it does not take away the importance and the responsibility from an organizational leadership perspective to also be just as um, keenly aware of the propensity for toxicity to show up that can negatively impact one's you know, workplace experience, causing them to shrink back, to not be as productive, and to eventually plan their exit strategy, right? 
I, I think that um, the both and is, is what I'm looking to amplify here in this conversation because that is really critical. And, and I think that part of the organization's um, responsibility is really leaning into this, this trauma-informed leadership style. And so I want to go there next, Marie, and I would love for you to talk to us about why is trauma-informed leadership a, a, a really vital component of DEI work? especially when it comes to um, helping to address the challenges and obstacles that a lot of marginalized communities face in the workplace. Yeah. So when it comes to understanding trauma, the first thing that I'll say is um, when we're talking about trauma in this context, I'm talking about trauma with a lowercase t, right? So not typically referring to um, trauma that may come in the form of physical violence, right, against people mm -hmm. or um, sexual violence against people, but mm -hmm. instead the trauma that occurs when we feel that we are no longer emotionally or psychologically safe in the spaces that we inhabit. And that often looks like harassment, bullying, microaggressions that can occur in the workplace. And um, when you look at the research of how trauma impacts the brain and how we then go through a process of recovery over time, the experience of trauma leads to um, instances in the months and years following of PTSD and heightened instances of anxiety and depression, right? So it directly impacts our mental health. Yeah. But what that tends to look like is um, us reliving the experience, re-experiencing over and over again, right? What that looks like is us choosing to avoid stimuli that were present in that traumatic situation, right? So if even just taking you know, myself as an example, how many times am I sitting in a, in a meeting with a, uh, a woman of power, the um, manager who I experienced with was a white woman of power, and I feel threatened in some way, yeah. she is actually positioning a threat, right? So that type of reenactment, that type of now wanting to avoid those type of stimuli, not wanting to be around those type of power dynamics. And the third thing that happens is then we become hypervigilant. And so we start putting up these barriers, right? Our ner nervous system now sees these stimuli as threats, whether or not they actually are or not, right? Could be a perceived threat. And we respond with a heightened nervous system response, right? Being fight, flight, flee, or fawn, yep. right? And from that place, right? Our prefrontal cortex shuts down. We go into animal instinct and we're not able to be fully present and perform the way corporate America or other spaces would like us to perform. <laughs> yes. Right? So as leaders in the workplace, there is a responsibility to acknowledge that everyone experiences trauma and that directly impacts how people show up at work, how they're able to perform, how they're able to interact with their colleagues and with you. And if you as a leader can recognize that and have empathy for that, you can actually support people in moving through that, right? It creates yeah. an opportunity for empathy when someone is triggered in the workplace, right? When someone is having a reaction that doesn't seem to match yeah. the environment to like, hmm, let me get curious. It looks like something else may be going on here. Can I have empathy and compassion for a human being who is having a human experience right now? Yeah, yeah. That is so good, Marie. And so what I'm hearing is that um, empathy, um, helping people to really exercise that empathy muscle is part of teaching trauma-informed leaders. And so um, what are some other ways to teach that? Because I, what I'm finding is that just generally speaking around this broad topic of, of DEI, some of the criticism is that we're naming things, but we aren't giving enough practicality around the how-to to solve for it. So I want to get really practical with this? What are some other ways beyond just helping people to realize the connectivity to empathy and compassion um, to trauma-informed leadership? What are some other strategies and tips to help people to really build those muscles? Yeah. So one of the things that we, we practice a lot and that we bring to a lot of our clients at High Tides is this idea of nonviolent communication. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a framework. It was built by Marshall Rosenberg, and essentially, it's a communication style and framework that is designed to foster empathy and compassion in how we communicate with one another. And part of what that framework allows us to do is to really break apart when tension shows up in our dialogues in the workplace mm -hmm. so that we can essentially follow four concrete steps, right? One is actually observing the experience from a non-judgmental place. So just looking at the facts of what is happening. And then from there to then really discern what is our experience of that. So what am I feeling as a result mm -hmm. of this experience? 
experience, right? And a lot of that has to, um, and in our work, we really talk about that from the somatic perspective of what is the felt experience of that? Where do you feel it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so from there, um, we can then take what can be a very triggering response, a, um, you know, a response from our, our vagus nerve, right? A nervous system response, and then start to actually bring it forward into the prefrontal cortex and examine, okay, I'm having this experience. I'm having a reaction. What is my nervous system telling me right now? Mm-hmm. And then from there, start to articulate what are the unmet needs in the situation? Yeah. From there, we get to communicate that, right? To whoever we're interacting with. Hey, I am having, I'm, I've noticed this. I've observed this non-judgmentally, I am having this reaction, right? Um, And then what is the unmet need as a result of that? And then open that up for a collaborative conversation of how we get to shift that moving forward, right? Yeah. um, This this framework, nonviolent communication, it's um, Marshall Rosenberg is the author of this work. Um, It's, uh, he came up with this framework in the the 70s. There's the nonviolent communication community. You can take workshops all over the country and all over the world around this framework. Um, at high tides, what we do is we bring that into how people have bias checking conversations in the workplace, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It's a way to overcome bystander bias in the workplace, because oftentimes what is occurring is someone is being assaulted against, right? Um, verbally or in the way someone is behaving and other of us may witness it, but um, the, the, the kind of challenge that I hear frequently from clients is, yeah, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say in the moment. Yeah. And a lot of that comes because, well, we just need to actually slow down and examine, right? What is actually happening in my nervous system? What am I observing, right? What is the impact of that? And what could we do collaboratively, right? Because we actually don't have to solve it on our own. Just yeah. our responsibility is to ourselves. I'm having a reaction, right? What is this data telling me? And then open that up for collaboration. Hey, what could we do differently? Because this is not serving me, us, the community, right? Yeah. But it is that slowing down and really kind of leaning into the tension and not ignoring it, but actually using it to create a different cultural moment when it occurs. And so that's really interesting. I think that part of at least what I hear so often in this space is that we now are seeing um, this culture of of burnout due to moving at such a fast pace of of overwork, of, um, you know, constant busyness being um, equated with productivity and success to where sometimes even if we are presented with tools such as all the tips and strategies that, that you're speaking of um, through this nonviolent communication, this this martial um, that it's it's almost impossible to really be able to lean into that. And so I feel like there part of this conversation needs to also address um, how do we get organizations to work on decreasing this culture that causes people to feel like this is important, but I don't even have time to deal with it in that level of sensitivity and thoughtfulness and pausing and critical reflection. We got to get stuff done. That's what I'm hearing a lot right now. Um, I think I saw something recently where the word burnout is like one of the top words that has been used and tossed around um, relative to you know workplace conversations in this calendar year. And so what, what would you say to that, Marie? Well, I think, yes, burnout has been on the rise. There's also been a very active movement combating that in terms of the soft life, right? We're seeing people, you know, Trisha Hersey and the NAP ministry and telling us all to rest and that rest is our liberation. So I think we are actually seeing a very clear response to that overproductivity culture. And actually, I think one of the things that's really powerful in these conversations is to remind folks that productivity, perfectionism, and urgency are all hallmark traits of white supremacy culture. White supremacy culture, yes, absolutely. And so when we call things what they are, when we give name to things, we actually create opportunity to shift them and do something different. And so um, even on the individual level, managers can choose to engage with their team differently. What would it look like if productivity wasn't about how many hours people worked? Mm -hmm. What would it look like, right, if there actually was no urgency and we treated our work as though it was not a life and death situation? Right. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I used to say when I worked internally, I would take days off all the time because I, you know, it started doing um, some consulting. I was doing other work. Right. I'm like, I'm going to take a day off. I'm going to go work over here and do something else. And I would tell my team, you can call me if there was a training emergency. 
there is no such thing as a training emergency. <laughs> Don't call me. This is not life or death, right? I'll be back in two days. You'll be fine, right? And so just reminding people that very often the work we do, it's not that serious. Yeah, We're yeah. This false sense of urgency. There is no true deadline. No one's going to die if we don't do it in the next three minutes, three hours, three yeah. days, right? Yeah. And so as managers, we can start shifting that culture on our teams. And the beautiful thing about doing that in the micro sense is people will observe that. And you'll suddenly be the manager everyone wants to work for. How do I get on your team? And other managers will start noticing. And just by being the change that we want to be, right, it inspires others to start doing things a little bit differently. Yeah. So don't underestimate these these micro habits and, and tactics that then can have a ripple effect um, and really create that 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 change across the board. Uh, no, I like that. Thank you so very much. And you brought up the white supremacy culture. And, and we we do hear all the time that um, the way in which we are defining productivity and busyness and, you know, perfectionism and all of that certainly breeds um, out of white supremacy culture. So I want to talk about the uh, white fragility and trauma as we continue to talk about this trauma-informed leadership. How does white fragility and trauma show up in Black spaces? And what can we do, Marie, to combat this? Oh my goodness. So this is one of my favorite things <laughs> because I think like so many people of color, I read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, and I laughed out loud um, because it, it's, it's a book from a white woman to other white people telling mm -hmm. them all the things that BIPOC folk have been saying for hundreds of years. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. to me, it, it was very funny. I'm like, oh, look at this white lady um, you know, speaking my truth, right? Which of course, problematic because of course, why is it that it requires that mouthpiece for other people to hear it, right? Sure. But um, when we think about white fragility, the framework that she set up in that book is really just looking at how um, trauma shows up in white bodies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And how when there is a feeling of being threatened, again, going back to this idea of trauma with a lowercase t, of people not feeling sure. psychologically, emotionally safe, feeling somehow that their position, their power, the validity of who they are is being threatened, how they respond, right? And so if we look at, again, the typical, typical trauma, trauma responses, right? Looking at fight, flight, freeze, and hide. Um, when we look at how that shows up in white spaces, when folks are feeling um, threatened, that's often tears, right? Guilt and shame is a trauma response, <laughs> right? Oh, let me yeah. start crying now, which of course acts yeah. to center the emotions or feelings of someone else who's being oppressed in the space, right? Yeah. So removing yeah. the, the attention from someone who needs it, right? Um, when we look at people getting argumentative or angry, they choose to start fighting us, choose to start saying things that are somehow invalidating our experience, the right. gaslighting that we talk gaslighting. about, right? That is a fight response, right? You're feeling threatened and now you are attacking me, right? You're choosing to somehow invalidate me. And so these are the things that tend to show up in those spaces. And it's really just someone having a trauma response. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. feel threatened and you are now mm -hmm. having this response. There's guilt, shame, tears, there's shouting. Like, and when we look at, again, if we go back to this, the Marshall Rosenberg framework, we look at objectively what is occurring in the situation. It doesn't really warrant that response. Yes, yes. Right, like, yeah. again, not, nothing has occurred, but ooh, we hit a hot button. Something inside of you is uncomfortable and you have an unmet need that is presenting in this way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what I love about um, the emphasis that you're giving to, to the word trauma, and it, it's, it's, it's very much providing a teaching moment, I think, for all of us, because I too have noticed that that word, it carries a lot of weight and it means different things to different people because it looks different to different people. And there are levels to it. There are tiers of it. And so I do appreciate how you have on a couple occasions today specified that, you know, trauma with the lowercase t, what that is versus what some people may hear and then automatically perceive. And and, and I think that contextual um, you know, amplification is really important to this conversation. Um so I want to talk about, I want to, I want to stay there for a second. And by the way, we are going to shift momentarily and I'm going to allow this.
your questions, your comments, and you can do so if you're part of the Zoom community by using the raise hand feature that lets me know that um, you're willing to be called upon. And I will spotlight you and allow you to unmute yourself and share. Or if you would like to just place your comments or questions into the chat, we'll make sure we're paying attention there. And the same for those who are joining us LinkedIn Live, um, you can place your questions into the comment section. We'll bring those over here. But I want to stay here for a second um, as a follow up to that white fragility question because. I think that sometimes employees, again, as we've said before, they have a hard time acknowledging common trauma responses, such as that shame, that guilt, that aggression and gaslighting without um, it becoming something that becomes then a part of their identity. And so if you could share with me, what are for those individuals that really want to name these things, really want to call it out because they are experiencing it, but they're also holding back because they fear that now this is going to become a part of my identity. I don't want to be that person that's like overly sensitive, that's always like guilting and shaming and blaming someone else, because that is a real concern for many people. When those individuals are grappling with that, what type of advice or coaching do you provide, Marie? Yeah. So the, the first thing that I'll say is we are not defined by our experiences, right? We are not defined by our experiences. And I think that's important for us to remember um, and uh, can sometimes be important for us to articulate even when trauma is occurring, when microaggressions are occurring, um, when bullying and harassment is occurring real time. And so and this is important, you know, we talk about in leadership conversations, one of the most challenging things to do is to give people feedback. And that's often because we will conflate the behavior with the identity of the person. Right. People are not their behaviors and they need to hear that distinctly when we give them feedback. It's the same when we're addressing um, aggressions in the workplace, right? Of being able to say, um, when you dot, 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 I experience dot, dot, dot right? Which is different than I am angry. I am experiencing anger. I am having feelings of discomfort and rage, right? It's different than I am rage, right? I am a human being having an experience, right? Mm -hmm. And it is the discomfort of that experience that causes us to want to shift something culturally and how we're interacting with other individuals. And if we're on a team that has aligned values around how we want to behave and how we want the team to feel like, we should be able to have yeah. that yeah. Um, and recognize that, hey, I experienced this or we experienced this. That is a temporary experience that we actually have power to change moving forward. Can we have a conversation about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. No, that's good. Um, so once again, if you have questions, certainly let us know. I want to be able to bring your voice into the conversation. Um, I'm not seeing any hands raised right now. So while people maybe are, are continuing to percolate, Marie, I want to go to the next question. So um, what we're talking about is leaning into um, the, the, the tension that discourse can create, obviously. Uh, the question is around what do we do to create avenues for productive uh, disagreement and productive tension? And um, what I have found, especially when we're working with teams, if we're in a group setting, group conversation, it could be a meeting, it could be a training, which is the space I often play in, the opportunity is to actually create and set the container up where engaging in productive tension is allowable and actually encouraged. So one of the things that I like to do at the beginning of any training is create space for us to actually co-create the agreements for how the conversation is going to go. Right. And so I, I say co-create because oftentimes as the facilitator, as the leader in the room, people will look to you. Oh, you're going to tell us how it's going to go. And I don't think that's actually empowering. Right. Um, trying to really remind people, actually, you are empowered. We get to do what you want. This is your team. I'm coming in often as an external consultant. So after this conversation, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go sit on my, my couch. So you all have to decide how you want to be together. And so when we can set that container up front, we can ask, okay, what do we want to do if we get uncomfortable? What do we want to do if someone doesn't feel acknowledged? What do we want to do, dot, 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 so that when it happens 20 minutes later, <laughs> we have that anchor to look back on. It's like, oh, I am noticing we are now out of alignment with the agreements we set at the beginning of the meeting. Can we, can we talk about that? I think now is an opportunity to shift that. And it gives people permission to actually call the thing out that's not being addressed. It gives people permission to acknowledge an unmet need in the moment. I love that. And what you're talking about are those community agreements. That's how we refer to them at NWC, but it is really ground. 
Ah. Oh my goodness. Yes. So community agreements is a way to ground conversations and allow permission for productive disagreement to happen. And I know we have a couple of hands up, so I want to make sure that we get to some of these questions. Um, Michael St. Clair, I think your hand went up first, and then we'll go to Kabina. I hope I'm saying your name right, Kabina Marcus, um, my roller skater friend. But um, Michael, let's let's uh, go to you and your question. Go ahead. Okay, peace, everyone. Uh, glad to have you on. I appreciate what you do. I just have two questions. Uh, first, you were talking about scoliosis. So I was trying to see, um, did you ever get surgery to address it? And did it affect your um, self-esteem growing up? And did it go into your adult life? Hmm. Yes. Okay. So yes, I did get uh, surgery to correct scoliosis. I was diagnosed in middle school and then had surgery in eighth grade, I then missed about six months of school for the rehabilitation um, and learning how to walk again. Um, it was kind of, um, in terms of the impact to me, it was devastating because prior to that, I was on track to be a ballerina. I thought I was going to go dance with Alvin Ailey, uh, but you need your you need full mobility in your spine for the kind of dancing that I wanted to do. Um, so um, to date, there are two stainless steel rods screwed to my spine. I literally have a spine of steel. Um, uh, so hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, I just got one more. Uh, okay, lastly, when you deal with trauma at work, how do you keep from bringing that home so that it won't affect you and your roles as a mother, wife, or whatever? And then I'm, I'm done. Oh, Michael, this is such a good question. So thank you so much for these questions. Um, in thinking about dealing with trauma at work or um, in our workspaces, I think it's um, really powerful for us to remember our first priority is to ourselves and to our well-being. And so I often, I have, um, you know, the rituals that I conduct every morning before I go into work that I know set me up for success in the day. And when I look at my calendar of what I have set up, the conversations I'm going to have, I think about how much space do I need between those engagements for me to come down and for my nervous system to reset. And so I do not book appointments back to back. <laughs> Right. I need at least 15 minutes between, um, sometimes longer. I'm also a huge advocate of letting people know when I get on the call, if I can't have this conversation today. Right. I have permission to say, you know what? I don't have it today. And so it is um, really active, energetic management. I'll also say if I am in a very triggering conversation or if I'm perhaps conducting a training with a group of individuals where I know I'm going to be holding space for a lot of other people's trauma. I then make sure then, okay, I don't have anything scheduled for the rest of the day. I need to go lay down. I need to rest. I need to take a nap. I need to go on a walk, be in nature and engage in those practices that I know are going to be restorative for me and my nervous system. Right. Um, and uh, some of that is also, you know, I'm doing this podcast with Nika right now. I'm like, there's a sign on my door, do not disturb. Right. And I'm a huge fan of do not disturb signs. Sometimes I'm just in here laying down on the floor, still valid. Right. <laughs> So those are some of the things that I that I employ. Thanks, Michael. All right, and then Quabana. I still don't know where the accent is. Did I did I do? Somebody. All right. Well, you go ahead with your question. Right. Uh, great job on the pronunciation. You you got the accent on the first syllable. Couldn't have done it better. Great job. I saw you mouth it perfectly when you saw first saw it. So I knew you were on point. <laughs> Um, first, I want to say thank you for coming today, Dr. Nika, again, always representing and bringing some fantastic, phenomenal uh, co-hosts to this uh, to this platform for two years that I've been uh, engaging in it. So thank you for that. You talked a little bit about um, you talked about like work workplace bullying and, you know, that the trauma that comes with that, but just also how to live in that type of toxic uh, environment. And as Dr. Nico was talking about, you know, we oftentimes hear people say, okay, well, you, you've helped us identify it, now what? And so I'm curious to hear some strategies that you may recommend for people who are experiencing workplace, workplace drama. And similar to what Michael brought up, you know, my wife is in social services. She ends up and she, you know, she works with a predominantly white female suburban demographic that is servicing inner city adults that they don't necessarily understand. And she experiences racism, microaggressions in that space. 
And um, so as a husband, how do I support that when it comes that comes home from her while also may, you know, fortunately, I work for myself now. I don't have the the dramas that I that I previously had and the bullying. Um, but when somebody's coming from a place of being bullied potentially at work, then they need to be supportive of the environment in their house as well, knowing that, you know, somebody else is experiencing these other traumas. Right. Okay. Got it. So I heard two questions. I'm going to do them one at a time. Right. So the, the first one was just around uh, what advice to give to people who are experiencing um, workplace trauma. They call it out and then folks are asking them, okay, what, what next, what do we want to do about it? Um, which is very funny. I'm just having flashbacks to my days working in corporate. If you find a problem, it's yours to solve. Right. Um, so the, of course, the chief challenge with that is culture uh, requires group accountability. And so, so when we find a cultural problem, it's interpersonal. It's actually not solely my responsibility. Um, I know um, people will say, you know, in a a conversation and Rosenberg will say this too, when we talk about nonviolent communication, you only need one person to be versed in it to make the conversation more effective, but it does require a conversation part of dialogue, right? We need Mm -hmm. someone else to own their side of the street. And so um, the thing I will say here is if you find yourself or, you know, folks who find themselves in these toxic workplace situations and people are asking them, what do you want us to do about it, can offer it. Well, um, I've done the first step of bringing this to your, your attention, right? Because acknowledgement, we need acknowledgement first. Um, and so inviting people, how would you like to acknowledge this? And then we can talk about shared accountability moving forward, uh, because, of course, the real challenge with a lot of DEI work is the people doing the heavy lifting or the people who are the most marginalized. And that's not gonna work for a number of reasons, right? Um, You know, we we can't be constantly asking the victims of trauma to save themselves, (laughs) right? It's like, yeah, I'm I'm doing my work. I got, you know, my therapist and my coach and my yoga practice and my prayer and my meditation. I'm doing my work. What are you doing? I'm showing up as best as I can, fully capable, right? Sometimes compartmentalizing so I can do the work. What are you doing? And so there has to be shared accountability there. Um, and really asking our organizations, our teams, our leaders to demonstrate that they're making good on the promises, right? It's it's about to be 2024. Uh, maybe we should check in on that DEI statement that's on the website, right? A lot of people made these, these promises, right? How, how, how are we doing? What have you done? What have you accomplished? Because I kept showing up to work and that was my part. Mm-hmm. Um, your second question was around how do we support others who are holding a lot of trauma in their work, right? People that we love and care for who are in our in our personal spaces, how do we best support them? Um, and I, I think it kind of also goes back to what I just said before of acknowledgement is always number one. <laughs> How can we continue to affirm them, validate them, pour into them, and also sometimes asking them um, what are their unmet needs, right? Um, asking people what what they need, I find is one of the most powerful questions, oftentimes because people don't hear it often enough. Um, and so um, for a while in my one-on-one coaching conversations, at the end of every call, I'll ask people, um, how can I acknowledge you? which is often a confronting and startling question for people. Like, what do you mean? I don't, it's like, yeah, how, how can I acknowledge you? What do you need to hear that no one has said to you? Right. Mm-hmm. Very, very powerful and healing for people mm-hmm. seen when no one else has acknowledged that they've seen them. Um, and the other question that I like to offer folks is uh, what do you need? Right. Yeah. Sometimes we get on a call with someone, we're going back and forth, we get on the zoom and people show up and you can tell they're not ready something's off, something else is going on in their life. And they don't have to even share with you what that is, but somebody's like, hey, do you need something right now? And actually mean it? It's like, cause this meeting's not that important. Why don't you go take care of yourself? And we can we can connect another time. So um, I think those two questions can be really powerful for people who hold a lot of trauma and hold a lot of space for a lot of people in the work that they do. Was that supportive? Thank you. Yes, great, thank you. Sure. Thank you so much, Pavana. It's good to see you. Appreciate your question and your commentary as always. Um, I just want to amplify something that you just said, and I, I, I put this into the chat, but the question of how can I acknowledge you, that is incredibly 
powerful. And I don't know if I have ever been presented or even a part of a conversation where that has come up. And I, I'm guessing that probably many of us are taking note of it to be able to leverage that. So thank you for depositing that gift for, for each of us to put into practice. Um, so we only have a few moments left, and um, there are two things in particular that I want to make sure we we are able to touch on, one of which is the facilitator um, certification, um, certification that you have. I want you to be able to share that with this community, um, and, and maybe we'll save that for last. But before that, I want to talk about um, EQ, emotional intelligence, and the pathway from self-awareness to self-regulation to social awareness and social regulation, because I think that's important conversation that this community would gain a lot of value from. Yeah. Okay. So EQ is one of my favorite things. <laughs> uh, so talk about emotional intelligence, right? Because it is the bedrock of how we create psychological safety and community. It is also a way that we really concretely can see uh, how much people need to be responsible for their own stuff and their own healing. And, so, and I think this uh, kind of goes back to, you know, Quabana's question of, great, we identified a problem. It's like, yeah, well, we're going to own our part and need other folks to own their part too. Um, and so when I think about um, emotional intelligence, I tell people all the time, um, your first responsibility is always to yourself, right? Am I okay? Are my needs met? And that's where we first have to do some of that work that we talked about in nonviolent communication of understanding what am I experiencing and what am I feeling right now, right? What am I aware of? What am I present to? And then what do I want to do about that? That is always the first and primary conversation. And then once we get really good at that, of understanding and owning what is happening with us, what our triggers are, how we respond to them, working on how we reframe and rewrite some of that um, neuroprogramming, we can then start to feel much more empowered to know that we are whole and complete when we start to address what's happening for somebody else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But we we have to be whole first because uh, when you take two hurt people and they try to have a conversation, right, more hurt ensues. But if one yeah. other person is owning and being fully responsible for their pain and their trauma and able to recognize it and understand where it's coming from and what they're feeling about it, and like, oh, I'm very angry because dot, 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 and that actually has nothing to do with what's happening right now right? Then they can move into some social awareness of, and I notice you don't seem okay. And I notice you're having a very um, large response or emphatic response to this situation. And they can do that from a place where there's no risk of them getting triggered by how that person responds to that feedback. Yeah. Right? Um, it's, um, uh, for, for years and years, my, my husband did martial arts. He does um, Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. And in Kung Fu, your, your teacher is your Sifu, right? Is the name of your teacher. And um, his Sifu would tell him, you know, when you're moving in Kung Fu, if someone comes to strike you, right? The goal is not to hit back, but instead to actually absorb it, right? Like you move mm -hmm. right, to absorb mm -hmm. it. And so that is the same thing when we're talking about social regulation, are you grounded enough, right, in your position and who you are, where when someone comes at you, you actually don't have to meet the attack with force, but can instead actually there's space to absorb it, right? Yeah. But if neither person yeah. has done their own work, then no one can absorb anything and it becomes yeah. combative and situations escalate, right? Yeah. So emotional intelligence for me, it has to start with owning your own stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Regulating yourself so that you can show up whole, complete, prepared, to engage with someone else's stuff because otherwise everyone's going to just walk away with other people's shit on their, sh on their shoes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so there is some work to be done in terms of, again, that accountability of like, what's mine, let me own it, handle my stuff so I can engage with other people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the premise of hurt people, hurt people. So if we don't heal, then that cycle will just continue. So um, you articulate it so well. Um, yeah, what can we absorb? And that requires us to pause and be very self-aware and through that self-awareness to be able to self-regulate. I love it. Okay. And then tell us about the facilitator certification opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So I want to tell you about that. And also there was something you just said that I have to respond to. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Go for um, it. This idea of um, having space to absorb, right? Which I do want to also acknowledge that in these conversations, it's okay if you don't have any space to absorb other people's stuff and to yeah. say, 
right? Which can mm-hmm. be a common thing people fall into of, oh, I saw it. I, I have to say something right now. I have to get into, and sometimes we just don't have the capacity for that in that moment. And that is okay. Yes. Just acknowledging. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. It, it changes moment to moment. Like I was, I was good yesterday and today I can't, I can't be that person today. And so yeah. just allowing ourselves some grace and compassion around that too. Yeah. Um, okay. So facilitator certification program. So we do at High Tides, we do a three-day certification program for facilitators. So this is for folks who are entering into spaces, doing trainings, moderating dialogues. Um, we have a lot of coaches and consultants who come through or even HR and L&D professionals who are holding space where conversations and tensions get high. And so we do a training program that teaches people how to hold these spaces in a way that leans into productive disagreement and productive tension. Um, And we have a whole lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) at creating scenarios where it is difficult (laughs) and challenging and you're practicing, again, those community agreements, setting the container, what can we rely on? How do we move through and have these dialogues? in a way that is highly engaging and does not um, uh, does not reinforce harm that is present in the room. Yeah. Um, so we've been doing this training now for a couple of years. We have our next one is coming up in mid-February, 2024. It's a three-day experience. It is a holistic experience. So we actually have, uh, I facilitate, but also we have a number of other facilitators on our team who come in, including a somatic practitioner. So we actually help people take breaks um, I don't know if you've noticed, but in longer sessions, you're like, oh, go take a break. And most people don't know what to do with it. And so they check email and that's not what we mean when we say take a break. So, yeah. so we do a lot of work in that space. Um, and that program, um, currently it's also, uh, available for recertification credit. So if you're an HR professional, you can use it towards your SHRM certification and our program in February will also be, um, uh, credentialed through ICF. So you can also use it for coaching credentialing if that nice. is the work. Well. Nice. So that is great. And we're going to place um, your website into the chat so that this community um, can learn more about that um, certification opportunity and take advantage of it. It sounds really rich. It sounds like it's something that probably every leader should go through. Um, and, and I'm just grateful that you have shared um, such wonderful insights with us today. Um, I don't take it lightly that this work, um, you are holding space often for so many people. And so it can be challenging, um, but you seem very much purpose for it. And um, I am, I'm glad about that because you are definitely in your element. Um, thank you to this community for joining us today. If you found this information to be useful and helpful, then share it out. Let others know they can catch the replay or they can also um, catch the, the podcast because we will be extracting the audio from this conversation. Have a safe and healthy and peaceful weekend. And we hope to see you back next Friday for another issue of Intentional Conversations podcast. Thank you all so much. Thanks, everyone.